Chapter Six of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Mount McKinley. The ascent of Ruwenzori unriddled the mystery of equatorial snows. There now remained the question of great peaks in the extreme north, where the mountaineering problems must obviously be very different from those found at a similar altitude in the temperate zones. Something had been done to solve the problem by the ascent of Mount St. Ilias in Alaska on July 31, 1897. But Mount St. Ilias was only just over 18,000 feet, and it was peculiarly accessible, for it lies close to the coast, on the borders of British and American territory. The eyes of explorers began to turn towards Mount McKinley, the highest peak in North America, which reached a height of 20,300 feet. Its latitude was 63 degrees north, and so within 250 miles of the Arctic Circle. The nearest salt water, Cook Inlet, was 140 miles from the southern face as the crow flies. It was therefore almost unreachable, lying as it did in the midst of an unexplored wilderness and surrounded by a mighty glacier system. On the south, these glaciers were drained by the Susitna River, with its tributaries the Yetna and the Chulitna, and on its northern face by the affluence of the Yukon. If the traveler attempted to reach it in summer, he might find a difficult waterway up to the beginning of the glaciers, but then he had thirty miles of ice to cross before he reached the base, and over these he must transport everything on his back. In winter the journey might be made by dogs, but winter in those latitudes was scarcely the time to travel. Moreover, Mount McKinley, unlike the other great peaks in the world, rose from a low elevation. In the case of the South American and Himalayan peaks, climbing does not begin until an altitude of at least 10,000 feet has been reached, and their line of perpetual snow is very high. It is possible, for example, to cover the 22,860 feet of Aconcagua without ever touching snow. But in Mount McKinley, the snow line was not much more than 2,500 feet, and there was something like 15,000 feet of climbing. Again, its position so far north did not permit the snows to melt properly in the summer, or to grow hard and pack. Its snowfall was so great that the snow never got into the condition which eases the path of the mountaineer. Finally, and this applied especially to a winter journey, it was situated in a land of desperate storms. The severest weather conditions ever recorded by the American Meteorological Bureau occurred at Mount Washington, which is only 6,000 feet above the sea, where the temperature was 40 degrees below zero and the wind 180 miles an hour. What might the climber expect 20,000 feet up in the sky, with nothing between him and the North Pole? The attempt on Mount McKinley, therefore, was not a thing to be lightly undertaken. It meant a journey to the remote Alaskan coast, and then some 200 miles through difficult and little-known country before even the base was reached. What the climbing would be like, no one could tell. The obvious route, as the map will show, was the Susitna River, by which, indeed, its first explorer, a young Princeton graduate called Dickey, had approached it in 1896. 
It was he who christened it Mount McKinley. He fell into an argument with another prospector who was a rabid champion of free silver, and after many weary days' dispute, retaliated by naming the mountain after the champion of the gold standard. In 1903, an expedition led by the too famous Dr. Cook reached the base from the north, but failed to do any climbing. Then, in 1906, began the explorations of Professor Parker and Mr. Belmore Brown, who were destined six years later to be the conquerors of the peak. The 1906 expedition may be roughly sketched, for, though it was a failure, it at least taught its leaders what routes were not possible. They started with pack horses and a motorboat with the intention of trying the northwestern face. They ascended the Yetna River, which enters the Susitna from the west, but found it impossible to cross the southern flanks of the Alaskan range. They then turned up the south side of the range and reached the glacier out of which the Tokositna River flows. By this time, their transport was in a precarious condition, and their horses could go no farther. They were within view of Mount McKinley, and saw not only the impossibility of the southern face, but the extraordinary difficulties of approaching even its base from that direction. They accordingly returned to the coast, where Dr. Cook left them, announcing that he intended to make one final desperate attempt on the mountain. Presently, Professor Parker and Mr. Belmore Brown heard, to their surprise, the rumor that Dr. Cook had succeeded. Knowing that the feat was impossible in so short a time, they disbelieved the tale and stated their views publicly in New York. Then appeared Dr. Cook's notorious book. But before it was published, he had departed for the Arctic regions. Geographical circles in America were torn with the controversy. A committee of the Explorers Club investigated the question, but Dr. Cook refused to give evidence. Professor Parker and Mr. Belmore Brown were, meantime, busy with their own plans for another attempt. The 1910 expedition was again directed to the southern face. Their reasons were that for most of the journey to that face, a water route was possible, and that if they failed there, they believed they would be able to go on to the southern northeast ridge, which, from what they had heard and seen, they believed to be the most promising avenue of attack. They also wished to duplicate the photographs which Dr. Cook had published, and so prove or disprove his bona fides. Also, the northern side of the great mountain had already been fairly well mapped, but nothing had been done on the south side. The notion of a pack train was discarded, and all their energies were directed toward designing the right kind of boat in which to ascend the Susitna and its tributary, the Chulitna, till they reached the glaciers. The party consisted of eight, including a young man from Seattle, Mr. Merle Lavoy, who was exceptionally fitted by Providence for the work of a pioneer. The present writer had many dealings with Mr. Lavoy during the Great War, and can confidently say that he never met anyone more intrepid, audacious, and resourceful. It was a summertime expedition, and the party left Susitna Station on the 26th of May. 
the ascent to the two rivers was difficult and exciting enough but they reached without misadventure the foot of the tokositna tributary where they established their base camp this camp was thirty-seven and a half miles from mount mckinley and a few miles away was the terminal moraine of a great glacier which they hoped would give them a roadway to the mountain up that glacier they would have to carry all their belongings on their backs in mr belmore brown's narrative there is an interesting passage describing the process by which men are hardened to wilderness work Quote, the day's work consisted in travelling through brush soft sand swamps and glacier streams for about ten hours with the exception of one or two men who put a biscuit in their pockets we took no food with us the day's work was in no way difficult for we carried during the preliminary reconnaissance no loads our condition from the civilized standpoint was splendid we were well fed sun-browned and fairly hard and yet we all came into camp thoroughly tired out two months after our adventures on mount mckinley's ice flanks we came down through the same stretch of country the snow however had melted leaving dense thickets through which we had to chop our way mosquitoes hung in clouds and four of us were carrying packs running from ninety-five to one hundred twenty pounds from the civilized standpoint we were not well fed and we did not look well our eyes and cheeks were sunken and our bodies were worn down to bone and sinew and yet we came into camp as fresh and happy as children and after a bite to eat and a smoke we could have gone on cheerfully it was no light task carrying an outfit of one thousand two hundred pounds over the thirty-seven and a half miles of glacier a distance which by the actual route used was much farther most of the weight was in pemmican and alcohol for the stoves the pemmican consisted of pulverized raw meat mixed with sugar raisins currants and tallow their principal drink was tea on the eleventh of june they had their last wood fire and after that there was only the stove the days were spent in sheer hard navvy labor trudging along on snowshoes under heavy packs and trotting back for others they had various misadventures frequent blizzards of wind and snow compelled them to shut up their tent fast at night with the result that on one occasion they were nearly asphyxiated on the twenty seventh of june they reached the head of the main glacier beyond which through a narrow gorge a secondary glacier descended from the mountains another glacier came down on their right and here they achieved an interesting piece of detective work at the top of it they saw some peaks which recalled an illustration in dr cook's book the illustration purported to be the summit of mount mckinley and showed on the left a rock shoulder which dr cook described as a cliff of eight thousand feet it was really a faked picture of the small peaks at the head of this glacier miles and miles from the main mountain and the cliff of eight thousand feet turned out to only rise three hundred feet above the floor and to be only five thousand three hundred feet above sea level one legend at any rate had been dispelled forever now began the patient relaying of provisions up the great gorge it was desperately hard manual labor their faces were burnt black by the glare of the sun and every now and then there would be a slip into a crevasse 
which only the highest good fortune saved from being a tragedy. After thirty-six days of hard traveling, they were at last within two miles of the base of the southern cliffs of Mount McKinley. They found themselves at a great ice basin, hemmed in by colossal precipices down which avalanches thundered. Before them rose the mountain, 15,000 feet of rock and ice. Their glasses showed them that the southwest ridge became utterly unclimbable after an altitude of about 15,000 feet. The southern northeast ridge looked more promising, and to this they turned their attention. In that northern summer there was no dark. Quote, the advance and retreat of the night shadows went on with scarcely a pause, and sometimes we would be uncertain whether the alpine glow on the big mountain's icy crest was the light of the rising or the setting sun. They had now a short spell of rest from their toil, and as the mind of man on such occasions turned to food, they invented out of their scanty larder a new pudding. Here is the recipe. Quote, First soak three broken hardtack in snow water until they are soft. Add sixty raisins and pemmican the size of four and a half eggs. Stir slowly but energetically till the mess is thoroughly amalgamated. Boil slowly over an alcohol stove. Add three tablespoonfuls of granulated sugar and serve in a graniteware cup. End quote. But between them and the northeast ridge lay a gigantic Sirac. For a day and a half they lay stormbound under it and then, on the morning of 11th July, tried to cut their way up the ice wall. It proved most difficult and dangerous work, and presently, owing to the diminishing provisions, they realized it was impossible. Again and again they attempted it, for only that way was there a road to the northeast ridges. But, at last, they had to give it up as hopeless, and turn their attention to the southwest Arit. This, too, proved too hard for them. They labored on under constant ice falls and avalanches and reached a height of 10,300 feet where they had perforce to halt. During these days they saw some marvelous mountain scenery. Quote, the whole of the great cliffs of the Box Canyon appeared at first glance to be on fire. Unnumbered thousands of tons of soft snow were avalanching from the southern flanks of Mount McKinley onto the glacier floor 5,000 feet below. The snow fell so far that it was broken into heavy clouds that rolled downward like heavy waves. The force of the rolling mass was terrific, and as it struck the blue-green glacier mail, it threw a great snow cloud that raced like a live thing for five hundred feet. Whirling in the wind, the avalanche had caused, the white wall swept across the valley, and almost before we were aware of it, we were struggling and choking in a blinding and stinging cloud of ice dust. They began their retreat, and their return to greenery in summer out of a hyperborean hell was like a man's recovery from a dangerous illness. Though the expedition failed, they were a merry party, for though every man was sunken-eyed and lean and hatchet-faced, he was in the pink of condition. It was nothing to them to carry a load of a hundred and twenty pounds, which would have broken their backs in the first days. The party included men of diverse temperaments and multifarious attainments, and Mr. Lavoy observed, quote, It is an education to travel with a bunch like ours. If anything should happen, 
you can listen to a whole dictionary. In the end, they came to their cash on Chulitna, and they emptied it as children empty their Christmas stockings. We were actually ravenous, said Mr. Belmore Brown, and as jars of chow-chow, cans of maple syrup, and tins of meat appeared, we hugged them in our arms and danced delirious dances on the sand. One of the great truths of life that one learns to understand in the North is that it is well worthwhile to go without the things one wants, for the greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward when the wish is consummated. I have eaten with all manner of hungry men, from the sun-browned riders of the sage to the bedark men of the Aleutians, and I have feasted joyously on sill-liver, seagull omelets, and caribou spinach, but never have I seen men eat more or better food. As soon as the explorers returned to civilization, they began to plan a third attempt. It was clear to them that the western and southern faces of the mountain were impracticable, and that their best chance was on the northeast ridge. This, however, could not be approached from the south, so it became their object to get in on the north side. Their explorations in 1910 had proved the difficulties of a summer trip, for loads had to be transported on men's backs over many miles of glacier. They therefore decided to make a winter expedition of it, and to use Alaskan dog teams. The best route seemed to be up the Susitna and Chulitna rivers, and they hoped somewhere near the head of the Chulitna to find a pass in the Alaskan range would take them round the north face of Mount McKinley. In October 1911, Mr. Lavoy began to relay supplies up the Chulitna, the plan being for him to join Professor Parker and Mr. Belmore Brown at Susitna in February of 1912. As Cook Inlet is choked by ice during winter, the travelers had to leave the steamer at Seward and make a long and difficult overland journey by way of Glacier City and the Knick Fjord to the Susitna River. There they found Mr. Lavoy with the dog teams. He reported that he had taken the bulk of the outfit to a cache on the Chulitna several miles beyond the mouth of the Tokositna. The journey up to Susitna, which was now a flat snow trail, went easily and pleasantly. When they reached the cache, they found to their disgust that a wolverine, which is the arch-fiend of those northern wildernesses, had managed to break in, though it was placed for greater security on a platform of logs among the trees. The brute had destroyed a good deal of the dog feed and bacon, and a new and expensive camera of Mr. Lavoy's, which had been swung on the top of a thirty-foot pole. The wolverine had climbed the pole, cut off the corners of the leather case, and gnawed its way into the camera. From the cache began a long system of relays, for it was impossible to carry all the equipment in one journey. There was now no trail, and a road had to be broken before each stage. The route lay up the Chulitna, and the travelers hoped to find some large stream coming down on their left which would indicate a gap in the Alaskan range. Any such gap would, of course, be filled with glaciers, the water which must form a river. On the whole, winter traveling compared favorably with summer. The men used snowshoes to break the trail, and after equipment had been transported for five miles, returned on the empty sleds for new loads. Winter had not killed all signs of wildlife, though hunting was difficult and the snow was dotted with the tracks of innumerable wild things. 
Even a finch was heard singing. Camping was perfectly comfortable, and in a tent with the stove lit and beds of green spruce prepared, the nights were warm and peaceful. At last, the trees began to thin. They came to a point where the valley split and a great canyon turned north toward the range. Travel now became rougher, for the broad level flats gave way to snow-covered rapids and big drifts. As they advanced up the gorge, a glacier was seen winding down from the center of the mountains. One night, Mr. Belmore Brown had an accident which might have proved serious. He went out to shoot an owl for food, and as the ejector of his little rifle had been removed, the cartridge came back on his eye and just missed his right eyeball. It gave him an eerie feeling to see the friendly dogs lapping up the blood-stained snow. Shortly after, he made a reconnaissance of 25 miles ahead and found the glacier they had seen from afar off running like a great white road into the hills. The route seemed possible, but there were ugly ice precipices at the head which suggested that the crossing of the pass might not be easy. A second reconnaissance took him to the head of the glacier. At first, no crossing could be discerned, but suddenly, at the head of the right-hand basin, the mountains broke away, and he saw a smooth snowfield leading to the crest. He climbed to the top of it, and at first saw nothing but a sheer precipice. At length, however, he discovered on the right a gentle snow slope leading down into a great snow cup, and realized that the pass could be crossed. On the 3rd of April, the main camp was pushed up to a height of 6,000 feet. Then came a delay from a blizzard which confined the explorers for 24 hours to their tents. It was bitterly cold and everything, including the alarm clock, froze stiff. They managed, however, to get a little fire with an empty pemmican case, and with the stove had a sort of party in the tent, men, dogs, and everything. The party was, however, unceremoniously broken up by one of the dogs backing into the stove and filling the tent with a cloud of smoke from singed hair. Next morning they crossed the divide, partly shooting and partly lowering their belongings over the thousand feet drop into the hollow. They were no sooner across when another blizzard arrived and they were storm-bound for thirty-six hours. But their spirits were high. For the time, they were done with uphill climbs, and they saw that by crossing a low pass at the head of another glacier, they could reach the great Muldrow Glacier, which had been known to the world since 1902. This glacier would take them into the very heart of the mountain. Without much difficulty, they crossed the pass, and, descending to the Muldrow Moraine, they realized with joy that they were on the northern side of the Alaskan Range. It was now nearly the middle of April, and they found themselves in the kind of country that hunters dream of. There was a chance of fresh meat, and to men who had been seventeen days on the ice, the hope of a change in their menu and the sight of vegetation were an intoxication. Mr. Belmore Brown went out one morning and fell in with a herd of white sheep, Ovis Valley. He secured three, and that night the camp feasted. In cold weather, he writes, one has a craving for fat, and in the wilderness one is less particular about the way meat is cooked. Our desire for fat was so intense that we tried eating the raw meat, and finding it good beyond words, we ate freely of the fresh mutton. 
I can easily understand now why savage tribes make a practice of eating uncooked flesh. Unquote. The white sheep was not the only game. There was a special variety of caribou, there was the Alaskan moose, there was an occasional grizzly, and there were quantities of ptarmigan. The travelers showed the most sportsmanlike spirit in refraining from killing females or immature beasts. From the Muldrow Glacier they turned westward and struck the McKinley Fork of the Kantishna River, which flows to the Yukon. Presently they were in timber country and realized that they had crossed the Alaskan range from wood to wood and incidentally had added two new glacier systems to the map. After snow and ice and pemmican they had greenery and fresh meat and as they worked their way to the lowlands the first flush of spring. Above all they had the northeast ridges of which there were three above them to offer an apparently possible route to the summit. They saw a glacier running between the central and northern and northeast ridges, which they decided would be their road. Mr. Belmore Brown went out to prospect, and, climbing the head of a valley, found himself looking down upon the upper Muldrow Glacier, which he now realized was split in two by the central northeast ridge. He saw also that the northern branch of it gave a road to the very base of the central peak. A base camp was established on the 24th of April, and four days later began the chief reconnaissance. They took with them a dog team, and for equipment their mountain tent, instruments, alcohol lamps, and provisions of pemmican, chocolate, hardtack, sugar, and raisins. The total outfit weighed about 600 pounds. They started at night when the snow was in better condition and found the northern branch of the Muldrow, which they called the McKinley Glacier, rising in steps like a huge staircase. Camp was pitched at the base of a serac between two great cliffs of solid blue ice. On the 3rd of May, they reached the top of the serac at an altitude of 8,500 feet after a very difficult journey. Mr. Lavoie, who was leading, fell into a crevasse, and the strain on the rope pulled Mr. Belmore Brown to the very edge. Mr. Lavoie, however, stuck on a ledge of ice, which eased the strain. Without that ledge, it may well be that the whole expedition would have ended in tragedy. Bit by bit, they fought their way to the head of the glacier, suffering severely from the glare of the sun, though the temperature was only one degree above freezing. They had now attained an altitude of 11,000 feet and saw a low coal on the mountain ridge where they decided to make a high camp. This would be about 12,000 feet high, which would leave them between 3,000 and 5,000 more feet to climb before they reached the basin between the north and south peaks. It was now time to send the dogs home, so, after caching their equipment, they started back for the base camp, which they reached on the evening of the 8th of May. Some pleasant days were spent at the base camp. When they left it, the countryside had still been in the grip of winter, but now everywhere there were grass and flowers and running streams. So far, they had managed well. They had crossed the Alaskan range early enough to find the snow in good condition for dog sledding, and they had cached 300 pounds weight of mountain provisions at 11,000 feet. They could, therefore, afford to wait till the days lengthened before venturing on a final climb. Here is Mr. Belmore Brown's picture of the landscape. Quote, 
The mountain country at the northern base of Mount McKinley is the most beautiful stretch of wilderness that I have ever seen, and I will never forget those wonderful days when I followed up the velvety valleys or clambered among the high rocky peaks as my fancy led me. In the late evening, I have trotted downward through valleys that were so beautiful that I was forced against my will to lie down in the soft grass and drink in the wild beauty of the spot, though I knew I would be late for supper and that the stove would be cold. The mountains were bare of vegetation, with the exception of velvety carpets of green grass that swept downward from the snowfields. In the centers of the cup-shaped hollows ran streams of crystal-clear water. As the sun sank lower and lower, the hills would turn darker blue, until the cold, clean air from the snowfields would remind you that night was come and that camp was far away. End quote. The sight of big avalanches on Mount McKinley warned the explorers that great risks had to be faced. On the fifth day of June, they started out for their final attack. Unfortunately, the weather became very bad, and soon they were enveloped in a heavy snowstorm. Mr. Lavoy had hurt his knee hunting, and the ascent through the Serax was for him very arduous. The nervous strain, too, was great, for they had to be perpetually on the outlook for avalanches. They feared that one might have buried their cache, and it was an immense relief when they reached the 11,000 feet point and saw the top of their sled sticking out of the snow. They now moved their supplies up to a camp on the call of the ridge at a height of 11,800 feet. On the 19th of June, they made a reconnaissance, taking with them food for six days and intending to climb up to the big basin between the two main peaks. They reached a height of 13,200 feet up a sensational arete when Mr. Lavoy's knee gave out and they were compelled to return. Three days later, they made a camp on the ridge at 13,600 feet. It was a wild and most laborious journey with a drop of 5,000 feet on the left and 2,000 on the right. It would take them two hours of hard work to make 500 feet. Apart from the handicap of Mr. LeBoy's knee, Mr. Belmore Brown's eyes were very bad. They now realized that they could not reach the summit with their food supply of six days' rations, and they were forced to change their plans and go back for more food. They returned to the camp on the call and packed up ten days' rations. With tremendous difficulty, they transported them up to a 15,000-foot camp on the ridge where they were on the edge of the big glacier-filled basin between the two summits. All three found their health beginning to suffer. The pemmican proved to be impossible food, giving them all violent stomach pains, and they were forced to confine themselves to tea and hardtack. The cold was intense, and inside the tent, with the alcohol stove burning and the warmth of three bodies, the temperature at 7.30 p.m. was 5 degrees below zero, and three hours later, 19 degrees below zero. Despite elaborate precautions, says Mr. Belmore Brown, I can say in all honesty that I did not have a single night's normal sleep above 15,000 feet on account of the cold, End quote. By this time, their appearance was, as Mr. Lavoy said, sufficient to frighten children into the straight and narrow path. All were more or less snow-blind, burnt black, unshaven, with lips, noses, and hands swollen, cracked, and bleeding. 
On 27th June, the packs were carried in relays to just under the last Syrac, which was the highest point in the Big Basin. The altitude was 16,615 feet. Their one comfort was that a snowfield seemed to lead easily up to the skyline of the central northeast ridge, and that from there they saw what appeared to be a reasonable gradient to the final summit. On the 28th of June, they rested and prepared for their last effort. They were now convinced that nothing could stop them except storm. The night was fine and the weather promised well for the morrow. The summit appeared to them to be nearly as flat with a slight hummocky rise which must be the highest point in North America. On the 29th of June, they left camp at 6 a.m., moving very quietly and steadily and conserving their strength. Mr. Lavoy and Mr. Belmore Brown led alternately. Slowly, they made their way up the snow slopes at the rate of about 400 feet an hour. At 18,500 feet, they stopped and congratulated each other, for they had beaten the Duke of Abruzzi's record on Mount St. Elias. Presently, they were on the skyline of the ridge, and looking down on the arena where they had struggled two years before. Now, for the first time, came a threat from the weather. The sky was clear to the north, but from the south a great sea of clouds rolled against the mountain like surf on a shore. As they moved up the ridge, breathing became more difficult. At 19,000 feet, they had passed the last rock and were looking at the summit. It rose as innocently as a snow-covered tennis court, but now the wind was rising and the southern sky darkening, and just at the base of the last lift, the gale broke. In a fierce scurry of snow, they crawled up the round dome, Mr. Lavoy leading in hacking steps. Then came Mr. Belmore Brown's turn, and he realized that his hands were freezing and that the bitter wind was cutting through his flesh. He dare not get dry mittens from his rucksack, lest his hands should be frozen during the change. When his second turn was three-fourths finished, Professor Parker's barometer registered 20,000 feet, and they were within 300 feet at the top. The rest was an evil dream. To each man, the other two seemed to be lost in the ice mist, and the cold was freezing their marrow. The storm was growing fiercer, and as they topped a little rise, its full fury burst upon them. The story must be given in Mr. Belmore Brown's own words. Quote, the breath was driven from my body, and I held to my axe with stooped shoulders to stand against the gale. I could not go ahead. As I brushed the frost from my glasses and squinted upward through the stinging snow, I saw a sight that will haunt me to my dying day. The slope above me was no longer steep. That was all I could see. What it meant, I will never know for certain. All I can say is that we were close to the top. Quote. There was no going on in the teeth of that gale. The three chopped a seat in the ice, trying to find shelter. But they were not huddled there a second before they discovered they were freezing. There was nothing for it but to return, for the snow was obliterating their back trail. Dead tired and sick at heart, they began the journey back, and found that the steps they had cut had disappeared. It took them nearly two hours to go down an easy slope of a thousand feet. They reached the base of the dome, guiding themselves only by the direction of the wind, and at last, at 7.35 p.m., 
crawled into their upper camp. All their apparel, down to their underclothes, was filled with ice. They were beaten by the wind, and by the wind only. On a conservative estimate, its pace was 55 miles an hour, and the temperature 15 degrees below zero. Otherwise, they suffered little from the altitude. Mr. Belmore Brown was able to roll and smoke a cigarette between 18,000 and 19,000 feet. They spent a day in their tent, trying to thaw their clothes. Pemmican they could not touch. Their chocolate was finished, and their food was tea, sugar, hardtack, and raisins. It was a cruel fate that they had lost ten days' rations in useless pemmican since leaving their 13,200 feet camp, and they had not only lost the food, but carried useless weight. They made one more attempt on the summit and reached the base of the final dome, but there another storm assailed them, and after waiting an hour they went back. There was now a real risk of being caught with insufficient food in a blizzard which would destroy life, and they made haste down the mountain. They had spent seven days above 15,000 feet, six days above 16,000 feet, and four days above 16,650 feet. As they descended, their health improved, and at last they came off the glacier onto the moraine and lay down on the bare earth. It was the first time for 30 days they had lain on anything but snow and ice. They slept like logs till the afternoon, and when they awoke, a warm wind was blowing up the pass, carrying with it the smell of grass and flowers. Never can I forget, says Mr. Belmore Brown, the flood of emotions that swept over me. Professor Parker and Lavoie were equally affected by this first smell of the lowlands, and we were wet-eyed and chattered like children as we prepared our packs for the last stage of our journey. End quote. How dangerous was the climatic condition of the mountain may be judged from what happened on the evening of 6th of July. From their camp in the foothills, they saw the sky suddenly turn a sickly green. There came a deep rumbling from the Alaskan range, and as they looked, the mountains melted into mist and the earth began to heave and roll. In front of them, a boulder weighing 200 pounds broke loose from the earth and moved. The surface of the hills seemed to open, and the cracks to spout liquid mud. The whole range was wrapped in dust, and as it cleared they saw the peaks sprouting avalanches. Had this earthquake overtaken them on the high ground, all must have perished. The story has always seemed to me one of the boldest and most patient adventures in the history of mountaineering. Slowly, the travelers fought their way to the discovery of the only practical route. Mount McKinley was conquered, though they had failed to cover the hundred or so feet which would have given them the actual summit. They had blazed the path to the top and solved its mysteries. Only that maleficent blizzard at the last moment robbed them of the full fruit of six years' pioneering. Next year, the actual summit was reached. The late Dr. Hudson stuck the archdeacon of the Yukon, ever since he came to the country nine years before, had contemplated an attempt on the mountain. In the autumn of 1912, he sent on supplies by way of the Cantitia River to a point 50 miles from the base. In March 1913, he and Mr. W. P. Karstens set out to reach the peak from the north. At their base camp, 4,000 feet up, 
they made a fresh supply of caribou pemmican which proved more satisfactory than that used by professor parker and mr belmore brown the road taken was the same as that of their predecessors up the muldrow glacier and then up the central northeast ridge they found that the earthquake of nineteen twelve had completely changed the character of that ridge and instead of being a reasonable snow gradient it had become a confused mass of rock and ice most difficult to surmount bit by bit they forced their way up it till they reached the upper basin and then being favored with clear bright still weather they managed to attain the highest point the southern summit there had been a story of two miners called mcgonagall and anderson who had reached the top in nineteen ten dr stuck discovered that the top they had reached was the lesser northern peak for he saw the remains of their flagstaff with this ascent the story of the conquest of mount mckinley is complete footnote dr stuck argued with much reason that the present name of the mountain is unsuitable and that the indian name denali which means the great one should be restored it is to be feared that the suggestion comes too late in the day ever since the expedition of nineteen o six mount mckinley has become too familiar a name in the western hemisphere to be readily changed for another the story of the parker brown expedition is contained in the conquest of mount mckinley new york putnam's nineteen thirteen and that of dr stuck in the ascent of denali new york scribner's nineteen fourteen end of chapter six